All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 2, please? Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And the message is entitled, A Call to Practical Obedience. Again, this is part 2. Paul said uh, a call to practical obedience through sanctification involved three things in verses 12 and 13. The person born again is the one that he addressed. The human responsibility was one side of the coin and the divine enablement was the other side in verse 12 and 13. Paul now revealed that a call to practical obedience through sanctification is characterized by three things and we have this in verses 14 through 16. Let me read. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may uh, become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. A call to practical obedience through sanctification is characterized by the following three things. First, a call to practical obedience is rooted in a proper attitude. Verse 14, a proper attitude. Secondly, a call to practical obedience is the process of godly character. Verse 15. And thirdly, a call to practical obedience is the product of of a transformed life, verse 16. We begin with the call to practical obedience that's rooted in a proper attitude. Look at verse 14. The Apostle Paul stated the measure of obedience as being total obedience to God. Do all things. It's a command, not a suggestion. Paul has already laid down the partnership for their obedience in verse 12, the human responsibility to obey God. The actions of the believer are dependent on God, not self, working out our salvation. The motive of the believer is God knows and sees all, even the heart. So it's with fear and trembling. And in 13, the divine enablement is given to us for the capacity to obey. God initiates the operative power to accomplish the work. Whoever he calls, he enables. God accomplishes his will and good pleasure. Notice Paul advances the instruction for the life of the believer in sanctification now. And I said it's a command. Do all things. Now he isn't going to give us any qualifiers after this. He just says do all things. The order of the Greek grammar is reverse. Literally, all things do. The word all means everything, anything, each thing, and it's emphatic, all things. The word to do means to be the author of a thing to cause to bring about or forth. So in other words, here is that partnership again that we saw in verse 12 and 13. God and man. Whenever you lean too far to the left and lean on man's responsibility, you're going to be trying to work, work, work. You lean all the way to the other side, you're saying, well, God has it all, and no matter what happens, it's all going to work out. They're both heirs. 
They're like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They go together. The all-inclusive obedience would involve all the revealed will of God. All things that you read in the Bible, beginning with Genesis all the way down to the book of Revelation. What I know I should do, what I know I should not do. What is convenient or inconvenient, what will humble me or exalt me, what brings glory to God, not me, all things. The will of God is found, as you know, in the Word of God. Sometimes people, um, they come to the Lord at first and they have a, an emotional experience when they accept the Lord and, and they never get grounded, so they live their lives solely on emotions and circumstances and feelings and, and, and they, they shoot up prayers like, Lord, if it's you that's talking to me to go to Hawaii, let the phone ring in the next hour. You know, and you start praying kind of stuff like that, you know what I mean? And, and, and you're really living a carnal life and a self-willed life. And God shows his will in his word. And he speaks to us in his word. The Apostle Paul stated the manner of obedience to God, notice. It involved one's attitude, which is twofold. Listen to his words, without complaining and without disputing. The first deals with the attitude of active disturbance without complaining. The word complaining means to mutter or grumble as an undertone out of a carnal discontentment and stubbornness. This is not to be without, it says. He's talking to Christians. The most important element of obedience to God is not the action but the attitude behind the action, I've given you the illustration often about your son taking out the trash, grumbling and murmuring and complaining. And then the next week he takes it out with a big smile and happy. Which one, well, both were taken out. Which one you like best? It's the attitude that's important. Now the context, I believe, is this complaint against God. Some commentators say it's against man and God. But the context before, it's God working in us to do both his will and his good pleasure. And what follows, he's a, he's a, he's gonna, he's a drink offering being poured out in the service. So everything points that this is reference to God. Certainly we can extend it in principle to man, okay? But I think the context is speaking directly to not complain against God, not to grumble against God. I don't know why God told me to do this. You know, I don't know why he said I shouldn't do this. You know, if I can. Hmm. This type of word is called anomatopoetic. Big word. It's a word that sounds like what it means, like buzz or mmm. The word here, the word in the Greek is gogusmos. <laughs> so it almost sounds exactly what it means, murmur. <laughs> murmur, murmur. A murmur is, 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 is something that, and the old King James uh, translates, it, translates it murmuring. I like that translation better. 
It's an unintelligible murmur or grumble as an undertone of dissatisfaction. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When your child doesn't like what you've told him or what he has to do, and you know he's not going to get in your face right away, but he's going to walk away with his back to you, grumbling down the hall, and you know, not loud enough for you to hear, but just loud enough to know that he doesn't like it. That's grumbling. The plural indicates the many things that can we can murmur about, and they're not to be. All you have to do is look to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Perpetual complainers, murmurs. Now this noun appears only three other times in the New Testament here. In John seven twelve, for the complaining and murmuring between the Jews and the people concerning Jesus. In Acts 6, 1, for the complaining and murmur of the Grecian Hellenists, against the Hebrew distribution to the widows. And then in 1 Peter 4, 9, for the believer's hospitality of one another without complaint, murmuring, or grudging. The verb form appears eight times. One is when the disciples of Jesus murmured against him in the discourse of being the bread come down from heaven in John 661. Another is that the prohibition about murmuring like the children of Israel in the wilderness. Paul uses it against the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. He's referring back to Exodus 15, 16, and 17, that whole wilderness aspect. Then Numbers 14 and 17, you find all those complaining, stinking manna. Manicotti, mana pancakes, mana this, we're sick of mana. Give us some flesh. Judgment came upon them. Water. It was one thing after the other. The adjective appears only one time to describe the apostate in Jude verse 6. So all these applications of the various forms of the word, whether it be a noun, a verb, or an adjective, it's in an evil sense. It's a negative sense, not a good sense. The second word deals with um, the attitude of active reluctance now, without disputing. The one proposition qualifies both complaining and disputing. And note the order. Complaining or murmuring leads to disputing arguments. The order is correct. The one precedes the other. The one is the result of the other. The word disputing has the idea of reasoning and questioning to express opinions, to argue, accompanied by doubts, suspicions, and skepticism. We've all met people like, no matter what you say, you're going to be arguing. Good morning. What's good about the morning? Uh, nothing. It's just, it doesn't matter who you're talking, you know, what you're talking about. It's just, you have to take the other side. We get our word dialogue from it. This is not what the believers to do. 
Now, we use the word dialogue to converse, to interact, to discuss, uh, to defend a position. Uh, that's how we use the word. But um, this isn't a very, this isn't a, a very negative uh, way of your own opinion, your own suspicions, and your own negative perspective towards it. It's a favorite term, by the way, of the emergent church movement. Their pastors don't call, I'm going to do a sermon, I'm going to do teaching. They don't do that because they don't believe you can learn any objective truth from the Bible. So they dialogue. They just sit around and say, hey, what do you think about this passage? Yeah, okay, that's good. How about you? How about you? I have 50 people. Wow, that's good. No objective truth is finalized. Everybody's answer is equal. Because we really don't know what the Bible says. Oh, really? Wow. How destructive is that? Relativism. Subjectivism. The word appears 14 times in the New Testament. Let me just give you a few. Matthew 59. Listen. For the evil thoughts, that's the word, that proceed from man's heart. Evil thoughts. For the disciples dispute as to who was the greatest, the word dispute, Luke 9.46. For ungodly and perverse becoming vain in their imaginations in Romans 1.21. Disputing is the external symptom of an internal condition of the heart. If you have a out of rhythm beat in your heart, an arrhythmia, rhythm is rhythm, A is negative. So you have a murmur of the heart. <laughs> so people are not consistent, they murmur. <laughs> they have a out of rhythm time and experience as often as they want. This is not to be in the believer. This manner of obedience without complaining and disputing involves the attitude of a servant, the example of Christ. We've been talking about that here in chapter 2. He obeyed, he served, he died, he was glorified. Wow. You guys remember Joseph in Egypt. As a slave, he was falsely accused and imprisoned. He went through a lot. And though he wasn't perfect, he probably did a lot better than I would have done. <laughs> and then when, he, when God set him up, he looked back and he realized that God intended and he turned the evil for good. He could see God's hand very clear. Obedience with a proper attitude declares trust in God and submission contrary to our emotions, circumstances, and lack of understanding. How often um, in the world when we didn't know the Lord, we have problems with an individual and, and because their thinking was so much different than ours, we would say, I, I, I don't understand how you can even think like that. In the Lord, you understand why. Because he's a sinner. He's fallen. Everybody has their own opinion. <laughs> you understand why as a Christian. 
Paul told the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So it is God who comes alongside. And then in the comfort that He comforts us, then when God opens those doors, we're able to comfort those who are in that situation. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to experience everything you've gone through, in other words, for me to minister to you. No. I can minister to you because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and my counsel to you is the Word of God. My experience is not the validation for my ability to be able to meet your need. Be careful about the type of theology in the church today. That's called relational theology. That's where Zippo... I've never been a drug addict, but I can tell you who can take care of you. I've never had suicidal thoughts, but I can minister unto you the Word of God. And God will deal with your heart. So you have to be careful of this thing that I'll say, well, you've never been in my shoes. That, that doesn't go. It's good if I can say I understand what you're saying, but that's not my qualification. It's not because otherwise you'd have to experience everything everybody does before you can minister unto them. The source is the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. Paul says, uh, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you and I may be able to bear it. First Corinthians ten thirteen. So we we get pretty close sometimes, huh? We say, Lord, I don't know. But he comes right on time, right? Always on time. He stretches you. God doesn't want you to remain the same. He's gonna stretch you. You can stretch a lot farther than you think you can or want to. We just don't like to be stretched. Later, Paul will say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Once again, I'm obeying. I'm trusting, but it's God who has enabled me to do that. But if I don't trust and depend upon him, he's not going to force me. Why does that work? I don't know. He initiates, I respond. He enables, I trust. It's called faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Those that come to God will believe that He is, and that He is the reward of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. It always points you back to the Word of God. Obedience with a proper attitude will promote unity. In the interests of others that we've seen already in chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Or verse, yeah, verse, chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. In 3, it says doing nothing through um, selfish ambition and conceit. In the rest of verse 3, doing everything in humility of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. And in verse 4, um, he says uh, looking not to one's own interests, but those of others. And verse 5, this being what? The mind of Christ that we're to put on. And so a call to um, practical obedience is rooted in a proper attitude. 
That's the important thing. Secondly, verse 15, a call to practical obedience produces godly character. The Apostle Paul declared the purpose for a believer to not complain or dispute. It was to stand out, listen, distinctly from others. To stand out. Listen to his word. That you may become blameless and harmless. Paul stated they were to be outwardly a visible example. The word blameless means irreproachable or faultless. Now this does not mean sinless or perfect but an outward evidence of the inward new nature. You're different than others. You're not living like others. You're not responding like others. This refers to a person who examines himself constantly, acknowledging and confessing their failures to God and to man. This person is developing and maturing an inward character unable to be accused outwardly. Peter says, when they accuse you falsely, then the only responsibility we have is to live in such a way to prove them wrong. Notice the word is used here in this way, and it's used four other times in the New Testament. In Luke 1, 6, it is used for Zechariah and Elizabeth regarding the law. Righteous people. Philippians 3, 6, Paul will say concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. That's the word. Now we know that wasn't blameless inwardly, just outwardly, right? <laughs> because that he was a Pharisee. So he was only concerned that he didn't commit it. Inwardly, he just kind of... But late when he came to the Lord, he says, I, I, I would have not known sin unless the law says, you shall not. And then he was convicted that the law condemns us, the law accuses us. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, it is used for the heart of the Thessalonians, which God would establish blameless Jew says he's able to present us faultless with exceeding joy when you get before the Lord Jesus isn't going to say dad this is John this is Joel now with exceeding joy hmm. it is used of the first covenant in Hebrews 8 7 which was f with fault because it wasn't sufficient to present you faultless before God. The law demands perfection. Now notice Paul stated they were to be inwardly a genuine person. The word harmless now means unmixed, innocent, unadulterated. It was used of wine and metals that were pure. 
refining. One who is genuine and sincere, having character, unhypocritical. Another, what you see is what you get. There isn't duplicity. There isn't two lives going on. The word is found only two other times in the New Testament. Jesus said, we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Matthew ten sixteen. that's the word. Paul said, for your obedience has become well known. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Simple. Harmless. That's the word, Romans sixteen, nineteen. The purpose and desire of God is to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. From day to day, from glory to glory. Now notice Paul the Apostle declaring a second purpose here as he continues for the, a believer to not complain or dispute. It is to reveal their true nature to others. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul stated their family relation should be evident and their reputation. Now we've talked about character. There's always character and there's reputation. Now, if your reputation is true and genuine, then your character is a source of it. There are a lot of people that have a great reputation, but their character is crummy. They're not concerned with character. Just the outward appearance. God is interested in your character inwardly. Therefore, your reputation will match your character. The phrase children of God refers to their new heavenly family. Technon is the word for children, one born, an offspring of God. We became sons and daughters of God by believing and repenting in the name of Jesus Christ, being born again and justified. John 1.12, to as many as gave you authority that became the children of God. And we are justified in Christ Jesus, Romans 5.1 and 2. The phrase without fault means what cannot be censured without rebuke indicating here an honorable reputation. Once again, this does not indicate a person is sinless or perfect. This form of the word appears only one at a time. Second Peter 3.14. Listen to what he says. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words... We don't live like the world. We don't hide like the world. We're not looking around before we do something like the world, the way we used to live, some of us, okay? As children of God, endowed with the divine nature, we are able to resist and deny our old sin nature, according to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. He's giving us to us everything pertaining to godliness that we might escape the corruption thereof through the new divine nature. Living sanctified and mature, 
Paul will tell us in chapter 3, verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So you're growing, you're developing, you're maturing in Christ. Notice Paul stated the place where this display of a sanctified life was to occur in this dark and evil world. The phrase in the midst of a crooked generation describes the time and the nature of people they were uh, around, affected by the sin of Adam. Every person that's not born again is under sin nature, is under the curse, and they are related to the first Adam who disobeyed and inherited sin and death. And when he had children, he had children that was passed to them a sin nature of rebellion against God's self-will. And along with that, the consequence of sin is death. People say, why does death come in? Because sin came in. Sin is the result that produces death. The word crooked means curved as opposed to straight. We get the word um, scoliosis from it. Scolios. Your back is crooked. We get this word, and it's very evident when you see somebody with a curved spine that they have scoliosis, and they need to be treated. This applies to every generation that is born from two sinners that are bent towards sin and trespass. So every husband and wife that come together and they have a child, have the chromosomes from the mom, have from the dad, and out comes out a little sinner. No woman has ever produced a sinless little rat. They are rotten little sinners. And you better thank God. God gives them to you without teeth and unable to walk when you bring them home from the hospital. Because if they could walk and they had teeth, mommy, you would not survive the first night. The word is used of unbelieving masters in 1 Peter 2.18. Now the phrase in the midst of a perverse generation describes now the character of the sinful man without Christ. The word perverse simply means to distort or twist. It's a participle, perfect middle voice, having been perverted. The individual is involved in this, Okay. The middle voice always means you are the one that participates. You're the one that must do it or are doing it either way. Jesus used it to describe his generation in Matthew 17, 17 and Luke 9, 41. Bent. Now, the whole human race is bent. Some are bent more than others. The word is used for contorting the way of God, corrupting it, Acts 13, 8, 13, 10, chapter 20, verse 30. 
The allusion is from the Song of Solomon about Israel. Listen, it's Deuteronomy 32.5. This is the allusion of the text here. Moses says, as he teaches the song of rebellion, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. He's talking about those that rebelled in the wilderness. This is where the illusion of the text is coming from. The rebellion was against God. After God, of course, is against man. Take note, it is in the midst of such people, the believer is becoming more like Christ, not in some isolated place where all is perfect, but through being insulated by the life of sanctification. Here's where people miss it all the time. And we've been around for a little time. So I've been able to see at least three generations coming on four now of people growing up in the church here since they're babies to about 13, 14, 15, okay? And, um, and when people think that they somehow are able to handle things themselves and they start making decisions and they think that they really don't need God or that they're going to be able to do it on themselves and they start moving away from God and starting to kind of compromise the word of God and thinking they don't always have to come to church or be the church and they don't have to be involved and they don't have to study and prayer. Well, I can pray anywhere and before you know it. They're into some bad stuff. Sometimes irreversible. Sometimes tragically costly. Happens all the time, ladies and gentlemen. All the time. These individuals I'm talking about used to sit right where you sit. (laughs) Notice the Apostle Paul declared a third purpose for a believer to not complain and dispute. To be noticed in this dark and hopeless world. Listen to the words, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul stated the Philippians were to catch the eye of those in the world. We know what that is. The world is good at that. The ladies, they get all decked out. They go to the mall and prance and look in the mirrors and they go fishing. The world's very good at that. We're to be just as good by who we are, by allowing Jesus to be seen through us. The word for shine has the idea to be visible, literally to appear. It's not light, really, but just, but it's, the translation has to come across like that. But to appear. It's a present middle indicative to show oneself, not to act, not the act of shining, but the presence among unbelievers. It's not the act of it, it's just your presence. You understand? Sometimes says, you know, Preach to people, and if necessary, use words. 
simple. To be noted, present visual influence to the unbelievable God. The tense is the present middle voice, indicating the individual person being the present influence. Wherever you may be, might be at a relative's house, might be at a friend's house, might be a friend that you haven't seen for years and they ask you over or whatever it may be. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, as verse 12 said, for it's God who works and you both are willing to do of his good pleasure, as verse 13 says. He's still dealing with this stuff. It's all related. Paul stated the Philippians what they were to appear like. The next word, he says, lights. Their presence. Now he says, lights. The word lights means that which gives lights, illuminator. Light attracts and dispels darkness. Light is symbolic of truth and life, darkness of air and death. The word is used for a star in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings in Genesis 1:14 and 16. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament. It's for the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21:11. The only other time it's used. And where is it? The world, cosmos. It means the fallen world out of order in harmony with God. We get our word cosmetics from it. Bringing things out of order into order. Cosmetics. Only the light of the believer in each generation can point sinners to Jesus to make them straight, untwisted, and out of order with God. Only the gospel and those who have been transformed by the gospel. Think of your own life. What um, you used to be in the world, how you thought, how you lived, people you hung out with. Some of them very nice people, funny people, fun people. But now that you're born again, you realize in what darkness you were and how it really was contrary to the honor of God and so what do we say? Ah, oh, it's not bad. Now you see it and you go, ooh, that was bad. Because now you have that new mind. Now you have a new standard. Now you're not living by your conscience, which you have calloused all over and scarred it. But you've recalibrated your conscience and your heart with the word of God. Now you've brought it up to the proper level and standard. Daniel was blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Incredible servant of God. Obedience that results in godly character confirms to ourselves and others that we are children of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not... Do you not know that yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. We, we, we keep our accounts short. Obedience that results in godly character in the midst of an evil world reveals commitment to Christ. 
Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The word deny yourself means lose sight of yourself. The cross was a symbol of death. Anybody that was condemned to the cross did not tell his wife, I'll be back tomorrow. They were never coming back. They would be dead. Obedience that results in ongoing character is guided by the light and it's a guiding others by that same light. You just hand it off as it's given to you. You don't mess with it. Listen to the words of Jesus and Paul. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You don't put it under a bushel. You don't cover it. That's Matthew 5.14. In Matthew 5.15, Jesus says, nor do they light a candle or put it under the bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So it guides you, but it also, at the same time as you're being guided by the light of the gospel, as people see how you live and everything, how you talk and everything else, they are seeing the darkness and the different things. They're able to see the contrast, the difference. It dispels darkness in their life. God uses that. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good works, they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not you, but your Father in heaven. Always. Paul put it this way, Ephesians 5, 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. If he commands us, then he's enabled us. And he calls us to obey so a call to practical obedience is the process to godly character. You know as a parent that if your child obeys you, they grow up to be sound, healthy, and happy. If your child doesn't obey you, he's not growing up sound. No one's very happy. And uh, he's not enjoying life. There's a parallel spiritually and practically in our lives. In order to thirdly hear the call to practical obedience is the product of a transformed life by the gospel. Verse 16, the apostle Paul notice gives the means by which they were able to shine as lights in the world. Listen to his words, holding fast the word of life. Paul stated it as an active participle, holding fast. The phrase holding fast means to hold forth to present. It's with you. It's, 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 it's the very source, as we'll see. This reinforces the imagery of light in the world. The tense is a participle, present, active, an ongoing holding forth or present. It's, it's a constant abiding in Christ, a constant growing, developing, maturing, 
constantly submitting my life to obey God, in spite the emotion, in spite the circumstances, in spite all that we've been talking about. In classical Greek, the word was used in two ways, to offer wine to a guest and to offer the breast to an infant. Both have the visual concept of quenching thirst and hunger. Notice Paul stated the identity of the source that enabled them to be seen as lights. The word of life. In other words, the phrase word of life, logo zoe, means the word that is full of life and can produce life. The word of life is synonymous with the person of Jesus Christ, as well as the gospel, 1 John 1 and 1, 4. The phrase word of life appears only this one time in the Greek. And it's at the beginning of the sentence, making it emphatic. Because it is the source that allows them to be the light. The quality of life is eternal life by the gospel through Jesus Christ. It's the life source. The believer is the light to this world being transformed by the word of life. This is the focus of the text. Not preaching. When you read some commentaries, they'll tell you right here, it's the preaching. It's not what he's talking about. It's not the rima, the spoken word. It's not caruso, it's not preaching. It's the source of life that allows me to be that light. That's what he's talking about. This is the context. Yet as a result, the believer is ready to hold forth and to present the gospel. But it's talking about the source that allows me to be the light. To those in the world who are lost and dead in trespasses and sins, they see my life and God may open the door for me to share. To all who see their lost condition and need of repentance to be saved. We are ambassadors of Christ as if God were pleading through us. So we implore sinners on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. You remember Peter presented the gospel at Pentecost and 3,000 were added to the church. Peter and John held forth and presented the gospel to the laymen at the temple. And Peter later to the house of Cornelius in Acts 3 and in chapter 10. But it was their life source. They were Jews, but they were no longer offering sacrifices anymore. They were Jews, but they were going to the temple to witness about Jesus. <laughs> they stood out as deep and ingrained as the Jewish culture is. The Holy Spirit had transformed them. As he did you when you accepted Christ. Notice the Apostle Paul gave the long-term goal of their obedience and godly character before others through the word of life. When they found each other at the judgment. Listen to his words. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul stated he wanted to rejoice in the day of Christ. The phrase indicates the rapture of the church. The day of Christ, 
has already been mentioned twice. In chapter 1, verse 6, he has been confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete until the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. The rapture takes the believer before the bema seat of Christ, is what he's talking about here, to receive reward for their service, and it's in heaven where this takes place. This also begins the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1a, 1 Thessalonians 5.4. When the rapture happens, the day of the Lord begins. We go before the beam of Christ to be rewarded. The wrath of God begins to be poured out. The Antichrist appears. Russia attacks Israel. Paul would rejoice, meaning to glory that the um, saints here of the church were there with him. He would rejoice because he would be there and they, the Philippians, would be there also. Paul would rejoice or glory they had been a godly example and that through their example being that light, just the presence, others came to Christ. The imagery of an athlete is presented by Paul often, as you know. Here it's a race. Paul saw himself as a runner in the race, and he ran to win, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. He would give himself black eyes to keep his body under, lest he be disqualified. Paul told Timothy, no one is crowned unless he competes according to the rules in 2 Timothy 2, 5. The imagery of labor presents the believer involved in strenuous work in the preaching of the gospel, serving the Lord. The word labor means to the point of exhaustion, by the way. It presents the hard labor through a farmer getting up early in 2 Timothy 2.6. His hope was that both his running and laboring in the gospel had not been in vain. The word means for nothing, having taken no effect on the Philippians. In the preaching and establishing of the church, in the instruction to the saints by his visits, as well as the letters that he's writing to them. We have only one. That's all that we know he wrote. But just the presence. I think of Tori, uh, um, Corey, Corey Temboom. You've ever seen The Hiding Place. Um, during World War II, her and her sister and family were thrown into concentration camps as they were um, uh, rescuing um, many Jews from the Nazis. And um, the incredible example of their godly character through the word of life and what it cost them and how she hated that, um, that guard that was directly responsible for the death of her sister. And yet how she had to come to grips and confront her and forgive her after she was released. Amazing. See, I need to hear and read things like that. Otherwise, I say, well, it's a little different today. You know, it's not. No, God's the same. He's as powerful and he requires the same thing from me as he did from her. Wow. 
No person is able to live the life of Christ from the heart unless they are holding fast to the word of life, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just a part-time Christian, it's just a matter of time before you're gone. If you remain a part-time Christian, you'll corrupt yourself. You've got to be totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with Him daily, abiding in Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. No person can glory when God uses their example and presence to save others. It's just the sovereign grace of God that should bring joy to us. We remember when we went through the Gospel of Luke, when you come to Luke chapter 15, um, from verse 1 to 10, there's two parables that Jesus gives about the lost sheep and the coin. The third one is the prodigal son, which is the climax to the three. They all have one central focus, something that was lost and was found, and the angels in heaven rejoiced over it, and the climax of it is the father who rejoiced over the prodigal son. But that prodigal son was never born again. Pastors and teachers teach that wrong. He was never born again. We usually use the word prodigal to mean someone who's been born again and they go back in the world. No, that's an apostate. A prodigal is never born again. The prodigal just lives like a pig in the world. And then someone gives him the gospel and he gets born again. Study the context. Okay? And many people use that because they cling to their little Calvinistic predestination. That if you were born again, you'll always come back. And you get an F in the subject of the Bible. Wrong. Listen to those two little parables. Jesus gave them. He says, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Yeah. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he found it, he lays it down on his, on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I, have, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Now, it's a parable. There's no such thing as someone who doesn't need repentance. So you don't interpret everything in a parable. The punchline is you rejoice over one sinner. Okay? That's the punchline. So be careful. Then he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it, and when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God for one sinner who repents. Why? Because the Pharisees were objecting to his rejoicing and being sinners. The parable of the prodigal son, 
He was lost. Two, two lost sons. One in the house, one outside the house. One came back safe, the other one remained lost inside the house. A lot of lost people inside the church. A lot of people lost inside the church today. And that will be in heaven. God will render a perfect judgment to every believer. Clear description of the beam of seat of Christ. Listen. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things that are done in his body according to what is done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 So for no other foundation can any man lay than that which is, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, which is gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each man's works of what sort it is. If anyone's works which has been built on it endure, he will receive a reward. If anyone works is burned, he will suffer the loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. First Corinthians three eleven through 15. In other words, God will judge us and the motive will be why and how we did it. The motive of our heart in First Corinthians 4, 5. He's not interested or impressed by what I do or how much I do. He's interested, go back to attitude, why and how I do it. Do I do it because I love God and I love them and do I do it out of love? Then I may get some reward. If not, I may be in heaven, have no reward at all. God will make no mistake. The call to practical obedience is the product of a transformed life. And so here you have Paul has revealed to us the call of practical obedience. That's characterized by these three things. He ties them all together. The call of practical obedience is rooted in a proper attitude, foundation. The call of practical obedience is the process of a godly character. And the process and the call to practical obedience is the product of a transformed life. God initiates, we respond. He enables us. He gets the glory. He does the work. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you, we thank you. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for tonight, Lord, and we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray for every person here and we pray that you would just deal with those that are listening over the radio, Lord. And if there's anyone, someone that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would make yourself known to them. That they would repent and call upon your name. They'd be saved and you would forgive them, Lord. If that's you, if you're here or maybe you're listening to the radio or the internet. If you don't know Jesus Christ, God has brought you to be saved to hear the gospel. This is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. Forgive me for all my sins. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.